Romans 14, 1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord, both of the living, or both of the dead and of the living. Well, this past Friday, I found myself in a courtroom. I'm thankful to report that my attendance there was not to determine my innocence or my guilt, but it was because I had received a piece of mail about a month ago reporting that it was my duty to arrive in this courtroom. And because I didn't read this piece of mail very well, Um, I learned upon arriving that I was there not for normal jury duty, but I was there for grand jury duty. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't chosen. I don't think I could talk about it if I was. Uh, I confess that though they say the selection of the grand jury is completely random, I couldn't have helped but feel it was a little personal that I wasn't called up to the front there. But it did, did give me two hours in a courtroom as they were processing, uh, choosing 16 jurors and 10 alternate jurors, which means I had plenty of time to reflect upon what a unique place a courtroom actually is. The room itself has a seriousness to it. You can't help but feel a sense of sobriety when you are sitting in a courtroom. And I confess that there were times when I even felt a little bit anxious And my heart started to beat a little bit faster, and I can't even tell you why, except for the fact that I was in a courtroom. A courtroom is not necessarily a comfortable place to be. And yet, Romans 14 was rolling through my mind as I sat there that morning, and I began to think about how much of our lives is lived in a courtroom. Not a physical courtroom, except maybe for Judge Skurin, but a metaphorical courtroom. In fact, I think we live most of our lives in and before three courtrooms. The first is the courtroom of our own minds, where we judge ourselves and the people around us. The second is the courtroom of other people's opinions, where we find ourselves being judged. And the third is the courtroom of our almighty God. In these courtrooms, sometimes we serve as judge and jury, questioning others, or even God, and rendering verdicts of condemnation or acquittal. 
At other times, we find ourselves in the dock, feeling the judgment of others or of God. And sometimes, we find ourselves in both roles at the same time, judging ourselves as we seek to understand if we are living up to or falling short of our own standards. I think it could be argued that Christians, of all people, are some of the people who are most aware of these courtrooms as we aim to live before God and others in a way that is consistent with our Christian calling. We care about our actions. We care about whether or not we are living up to our own standards or the standards of others, and especially the standards of God. Well, in our passage for today, each of these courtrooms is in view as Paul counseled the church towards unity amid their diversity. To flesh these courtrooms out even more, I want to give you um, an example from my life, earlier in my life, which was when I lived in Jerusalem. An example of how these three courtrooms might be at play in the local church. When we lived in Jerusalem, we had a friend, a Muslim friend, who loved Slim Jims, of all things. Slim Jim beef sticks, which you can't get when you are in Israel, Palestine. And so when we would go back to the States, he would ask any of the Americans to bring him back Slim Jims, and we would. And it would be a delight to do so. But one year, he stopped asking. And I asked him, why don't you ask for Slim Jims anymore? Why can't we bring you Slim Jims anymore? And it was because he had learned that Slim Jims were made in a factory that also processed pork. And as a Muslim, he was forbidden from eating pork. In fact, he was kind of disgusted to learn that there was even a possibility that he had consumed a microscopic amount of pork in his Slim Jims. Now, let's say that our friend were to become a Christian, and to my knowledge, he has not yet, though we have prayed often for him. But were he to become a Christian and attend a local church there with other Arabs, some of them likely would have been like him, a Muslim background believer, some of whom would have been raised in the Christian faith from birth. If he were to join that local church and go to that wonderful tradition of a church potluck and come to a plate of bacon-wrapped dates, we would see that all three courtrooms are in play. First, he'd stand in the courtroom of his own mind where he couldn't help but feel like it was still wrong for him to eat the bacon before him even though he understands that now he is a Christian and Christians can eat bacon. Then he may put a few of the people around him in the dock of his own courtroom, some of the Muslim background believers that he knows had the same upbringing as him. And as he sees them consume the dates and wonders how could they do that and live with a right conscience. And then there's the Christian background believer behind him in line, annoyed at the fact that his brother in front of him has once again skipped the bacon dish and taken only vegetables. And he wonders to himself, doesn't he know he doesn't have to live like a Muslim anymore? He's a Christian now. And finally, there is the courtroom of God, the eternal judge before whom all will have to give an account for all of their actions, even what you take in line at the potluck. We may not have any moral misgivings with eating pork at a potluck, 
The situation, though, that I just described still takes place among Christians throughout the world and here at Grace Church on any given Sunday. We just wrestle with different things. We wrestle with the clothing people wear to church, the slang way that they talk, the music they prefer, the apps they enjoy, the tattoos that adorn their bodies, the way they spend their money, the way they vote, or how they spend their Sunday afternoons. People are constantly being tried in the courtrooms of our minds, while we ourselves are being tried in the courtrooms of their minds. And in both cases, we are being influenced by how we think things will go down in God's courtroom at the end of time. So how are we to live in light of all of this? That is where Romans 14 comes in, providing us with wisdom to guide how we live as Christians before these three courtrooms. Wisdom that I believe can be distilled into four questions, four questions that arise out of our passage and will serve as our outline this morning. Our first question arises out of Paul's opening statement in our passage, along with its parallel statement in last week's text. So our passage begins in verse 5 by saying, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And if we were to look at last week's text in verse 2, we would see one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. In both of these statements, Paul raises ongoing matters of disagreement within the local church, both of which seem to arise from Jewish believers who are holding on to Jewish customs even after coming to faith in Christ. Customs regarding food, which the issue for them would have been eating food that they didn't believe was in accordance with food laws while living uh, in places where things were not prepared in the same ways as they would according to food laws. Or, as in our text, customs regarding days. And by days, what is likely in mind here is the observance of days like Jewish feast days, new moon festivals, days of fasting, and perhaps what is most in view, the Sabbath day. With Jewish believers abstaining from certain foods and observing certain days while Gentile Christians believed that they were free to eat any of the foods and need not observe these particular days. Paul responds to both of these scenarios by encouraging unity amid a diversity of convictions, encouraging Christians to welcome one another amid these differences. But when we look at Paul's other letters, we see that this is not always the approach he takes when there are a diversity of convictions within a church community. I'll give you two examples. In his letter to the Galatians, he observes that there are those in the community who are advocating circumcision for new converts. And in his letter to Timothy, he observes that there are those in the community who are suggesting that the resurrection has already taken place. What Paul doesn't do in each of these cases is he doesn't say, well, one person believes that new converts should be circumcised and another doesn't. And he doesn't say, one person believes the resurrection has already happened and some, the other believes that the resurrection is yet to come. Just welcome one another. Let each person be convinced in his own mind. No, if we look at Galatians, what we see 
is he very strongly condemns the idea that someone would need to be circumcised following conversion. In fact, he says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And in Timothy, Paul says to those who have confirmed that they believe the resurrection has already happened, he says, he has handed them over to Satan. It's pretty different. Pretty different. In Galatians, he also says, he implies that those who teach this are cursed. A curse is upon them. So what accounts for the differences? When we compare Romans 14 to these two situations, and there's others we could have looked at, we see, arising from these letters, that there are two types of categories of convictions among those in the church, and that those two categories of convictions require two different types of responses. The first category is what we might call non-essential matters. And these would be the matters that are being brought up right here in Romans 14. Eating food and observing days. The second category we understand to be essential matters. Non-negotiables. Ones worth condemning those who hold those matters and separating, well, correcting, and if they won't be corrected, then separating with them over. And this distinction is crucial if we're to rightly apply Romans 14 to life in the local church. So which issues are essential and non-essential? That's the big question. And I don't want to be presumptuous by making it seem like I have the answer to that question. That's actually a question that church denominations have disagreed on for a long time. What is essential and what is not essential? But I do think we get some really helpful clues from Romans 14 on what qualifies as non-essential issues. So as we think about what Paul is saying about food and about days and the observing of these things— one thing we conclude is that Paul is not discerning between issues that are addressed in Scripture and issues that are not addressed in Scripture. Because there has been a lot of ink spilled in Scripture on days, particularly the Sabbath day, and on food, and which food you can and cannot eat at various times in salvation history. So it's not a matter of something just isn't addressed in Scripture. Okay. Secondly, we can say that it is not discerning between issues where Scripture clearly lays out what is right and ones where Scripture is kind of unclear on what is right. Okay? And the reason we can say that is because Paul isn't unclear in Romans 14 about what is right. In fact, multiple times in Romans 14, he affirms what he believes about food. And whether or not you can eat it. If you just were to look at verse 14, you would hear Paul say, he is persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself. And then in verse 20, he says, emphatically, everything is indeed clean when it comes to eating food. So it's not a matter of scripture isn't even clear on the subject. Because Paul is quite clear that there is a right view and there is a, to be nice, less right view. So what matters when it comes to deciding what is essential then and what is not? Well, the key distinction comes to us in Romans 14, and the key distinction is the motive behind the practice. 
And if this motive serves to strengthen one's faith in God, or if it jeopardizes their faith in God. This becomes really clear when we look at the topic of circumcision, because in Galatia, where circumcision is being commended, it is being commended as necessary for salvation, and circumcision is shorthand for saying you need to obey the whole Old Testament law. That teaching in and of itself is a teaching that is the anti-gospel. It is saying you must do this in order for God to save you. And for those of us who understand what the gospel teaches, we understand that we are saved by a gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone. So teaching that circumcision and the motive behind that to get you to obey the law as part of contributing to how you are saved, there's a big problem with that. And the problem is in the motivation behind it. But if we were to look somewhere else in Scripture, we would see Paul advocating circumcision. And it's when he meets young Timothy. Paul takes young Timothy, a new convert to the faith, and he takes him and he circumcises him. How can you do that, Paul, when you're writing this to the Galatian church? Well, the reason all comes down to Paul's motive. Paul is not doing so in order to add something to Timothy's salvation. Paul is doing so so that Timothy will be more readily received by the Jewish community that they are going into in order to share the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel that is that we are saved through faith alone, through Christ alone. So the motivation is key behind the action. And in Rome, the motivation behind applying food laws and observing days is totally different, as we will see in our third point, than what was happening in Galatia. And it actually serves to strengthen the faith of the weaker believer in their walk with the Lord. Well, before we move on to the next point, we have to ask, what does this mean for us? When it comes to differing Christian convictions, one of the first questions we must ask in the courtroom of our own minds when another is in the dock is, is this issue that we differ on essential to their salvation? Is this something that should my brother or sister continue in this direction, it will jeopardize the gospel and salvation by faith alone and thus their relationship with God? If it is, then we have a process laid out in Scripture for how we should approach that individual. And it begins with us going to them in love to have some hard conversations and hopefully win them back from their errors. But if not, it is something that we would ultimately separate over. But if we find that the issue that our brother or sister in Christ is wrestling with, that conviction that is different than our conviction, does not jeopardize the gospel or the relationship with the Lord, even if we believe that Scripture clearly teaches a better way, then we must learn to show grace to one another and forbear with one another in the name of Christian unity. That is what Romans 14 is teaching us. So our first question in asking how do we apply this to the church body is, is this an essential topic or is this 
non-essential. Is this essential for the faith of the believer to continue to grow in their walk with the Lord, or is it not? And a key to that is the motivation behind what they are doing. Well, that said, it's not always easy to discern whether someone's practices or even whether our own practices are leading us towards God or away from him which is why we need to continue on in our passage as it gives us some really helpful criteria for evaluating Christian convictions. So, continuing on. As we read verse 5, we read, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In both last week's text and this week's text, Paul follows a particular scenario, the scenario of eating or observing days, with a principle. Last week, the principle was, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This week, the principle is, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Well, what does that mean? What I think that means is that if you were to sit across from Pastor Paul and you were a troubled believer wrestling with what you should do, if you were wrestling with whether or not you should observe the Sabbath or not observe the Sabbath, one of the first questions Paul would ask you is, well, what do you think? Now, that's surprising because for most of us, if we were in Paul's shoes, that would be one of the later questions we would ask or one we wouldn't ask at all. We'd start by saying, well, what does God think about this? Or what does the Bible say about this? Or where we probably would start is, let me tell you what I think about this. But Paul is commending the question, what do you think about this? Why would Paul go there? Why should each one be fully convinced in his own mind? Well, I think Paul goes here because what takes place in the inner courtroom of your mind when you have yourself in the dock really does matter. It matters because what you determine in the inner courtroom will have implications before the courtroom of God. We get that idea from further on in Romans 14. If you look at Romans 14, 22 to 23, here is what you will see. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you go against the judge in your personal courtroom, your conscience, you've transgressed the judge of the universe. Not because the thing you've done is inherently sinful, but because you believed it to be so at the time. How does that apply to us then? When you're trying to decide what you should do on non-essential matters, like, can I wear this to church? Can I watch that show? Should I go to that concert? Should I spend my money on that car? The application of Romans 14 would be we should at least 
stop and take some time to ask ourselves, what do I think about this? We should step into the courtroom of our minds and ask, am I at peace with this decision? Can I do this without feeling like I'm doing something wrong? Do I believe that this is what God would have me do in this situation? And if the answer is no, even if that answer is not fully scripturally informed, then you shouldn't do that thing. Similarly, if we find someone else in the dock of our own minds wondering how could they live in that way, in the way that they are living, we should say to ourselves, well, I wonder what they think about that. I wonder if they are doing what they're doing because they don't want to go against their conscience. And if so, I certainly should not be the one to entice them or encourage them into disobeying their conscience. Now, there are some among us who are going to wrestle with the words fully convinced. When it comes to convictions about the Christian life, some of us struggle to be fully convinced about just about anything. We waver back and forth. We're not sure what we are supposed to do. So, Paul, what do you mean when you say each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. I've recently learned about a condition called scrupulosity, which is defined by the National Library of Medicine as a psychological disorder primarily characterized by pathological guilt or obsession associated with moral or religious issues. And it's also defined in the International OCD Foundation as scrupulous individuals are overly concerned that something they thought or did might be a sin or other violation of religious or moral doctrine. And this is a serious struggle for some people, and some of you feel like I just diagnosed you. But I think even if you don't fully identify with that, all of us can identify with that in one way, shape, or form. How am I supposed to be fully convinced? That's not as easy as it sounds. Which is why it's important for us to see what Paul says next. We need to see what Paul says in order to support the statement that he has just made. And something I want to assure you of that he does, the direction he goes, is he does not say that we must logically be fully convinced. That this is just a matter of logic. We, we argue and reason ourselves into full conviction. Rather, it's not a logical progression, but a love for God that convinces us of what we ought to do. So moving on to the third port, point, Paul supports his principle at the end of verse 5 with the following reasoning. Paul says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Well, what is Paul's point here? We hear something being repeated, don't we? And it's the theme that unites each of the examples that Paul has given us. How do those who observe certain days do so? They do so in honor of the Lord. How do those who are convinced that they can eat and drink whatever they want do so? Well, they eat and drink in honor of the Lord, which is evidenced by the fact that they thank God for the food that they are about to eat. 
And how do those who abstain from foods do so? Well, they do so in honor of the Lord, evidenced by the fact that they thank God for the food that they've chosen to eat, which doesn't include the food they haven't chosen to eat. The posture of each example given here is one of doing what they do in honor of the Lord, which is pointing us to a very foundational understanding of the Christian life. Paul's observation in this, in each of these cases, is that the desire to honor the Lord, or a desire, you might have heard it said this way, to bring God glory is the motivation behind what each of these Christians is doing, whether they are weak in their faith or whether they are strong in their faith. What they desire to do is honor the Lord. That is their motivation. And in the next two verses, Paul is basically saying, my friends, this is what the Christian life is all about. And that's why we read in verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Here he is speaking of the church. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Paul is saying all of life, from the beginning to the end, from when you took your first breath to when you die, all of life as Christians is about doing whatever we do to the Lord and for the Lord and in honor of the Lord and to the glory of God, which is why in a companion passage to Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul concludes, so what, what, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the key for Paul when it comes to evaluating differing approaches on non-essential matters is to not ask what are they doing, but why are they doing it? What is their motivation? And if their motivation is that they are fully convinced that this, in this moment, knowing who I am and what I understand God to be, in this moment, if I do it this way, I think that that will bring the most honor to God, then they are living exactly where they ought to be living. Well, what about us? When it comes to differing convictions within our body, what about us? A third question that we should use to evaluate our own decisions, as well as those of our brothers and sisters, ought to be, what is your motivation? What is your motivation? And the motivation Paul is commending to us is one that we ought to respect and listen to, both in ourselves and in others. And it's the motivation to do everything we do to the glory of God. When we do, we will find that while we may be mistaken about what Scripture permits or prohibits, we won't be mistaken about what the Christian life is all about. And when you're not mistaken about what the Christian life is all about, you can be wrong about a lot of things and still be welcome among the people of God. That, I believe, is Paul's final point in this passage. Paul concludes our passage for today by saying, So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived, uh, lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Well, I believe the first three questions are those that we should use to help us evaluate ourselves and how we evaluate others. Is it essential what do they think? What is their motivation? I think the question that arises from this final point comes to us less as a question that we need to answer and more as an assurance that we need to receive. 
In this last thought, Paul is assuring the church in Rome and the church in Warrenville of their unity in Christ. Yes, they may differ on what they eat or how they observe certain days, but they have this in common. They belong to God. They are part of his family, and he has welcomed them. And why has he welcomed them? It's not because of what they do. It's not because of the food they eat or the days they observe. It's not because of how they dressed on Sundays. It's not because of the movies they didn't watch or the beverages they didn't drink. He welcomed them because Christ has died and lived again that he might be Lord of the dead and the living. Our belonging to the Lord and being welcomed by him into his family is not based on something so flimsy as our fluctuating convictions about how Christians ought to live. Instead, it is founded on the unchangeable truth that Christ died to redeem us from our sin and then he conquered death and he was raised to rule over all of creation. He is Lord both of the living and the dead. So, when we submit to his lordship, and we evidence that we submit to his lordship by doing all that we do to the glory of God. We can be wrong about a lot of things and still be welcome among the people of God. And when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can be patient with one another, not passing judgment on one another, not despising one another for our various convictions, but welcoming one another. United in the common desire and even the presupposition that what we do, we do in honor of the Lord. We've reached the conclusion. What Romans 14 shows us today is that Paul's priority for the church in Rome and for us today is a unity of focus and motivation, not simply a uniformity in our patterns and our practices. Paul wants us to see that there is a priority. The priority in the local church is to be unified in your motivation, that we are doing all we do to serve and honor God. Only second then comes our patterns and our practices. It is to be unified by welcoming those God has welcomed and then moving in the same direction, knowing we won't necessarily do so at the same pace or with all the same convictions. And that, my friends, is a beautiful picture of what the church is. But so often that picture is lost. And we find ourselves passing judgment on one another and being despised by others rather than welcoming one another. Why do we do that? Well, when I arrived at the courtroom this past Friday for grand jury duty... <laughs> I was handed a pamphlet entitled, A Handbook for Illinois Jurors, the purpose of which was to help us be oriented and understand our roles and duties that we would have to fill if we were chosen to the grand jury, which I'm still bitter about. In this pamphlet was written the oath that each juror would need to take before assuming their role. The oath, as it was recorded in the pamphlet, ended by saying, You shall present the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, according to the best of your skill and understanding. So help you God. However, 
Once the jury was chosen and it was time for them to take the oath, the one leading them in the oath this past Friday in an Illinois courtroom said, repeat after me, you shall present the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth according to the best of your skill and understanding, so help you. And just like that, God was removed from this particular Illinois courtroom. Why do we despise and pass judgment on one another instead of welcoming one another when God has welcomed us? Could it be because we have removed God from the courtroom of our inner minds? When we condemn and despise the convictions of our brothers and sisters in Christ, is it because God is out of the picture? We are the judge. Our opinion is the law of the land, and that is all that matters. Or could we find that God is in the courtroom, but he's a very different God than the God of the Bible? Is he the God in your courtroom? Is he the God who sent his son on a divine rescue mission to save sinners who could do nothing to save themselves? Is he a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Is he the God who invites the weary and the heavy laden to come to him so that he might give them rest? Is he a God who is not slow in fulfilling his promises, but who is patient, who is patient? Or is he a God made in our own image, judging and condemning those who aren't like us. If we're to live out Romans 14, God, as he reveals himself in Scripture, must be actively influencing the courtroom of our mind, both in how we evaluate ourselves and in how we evaluate one another. And when God is actively influencing the courtroom of our minds, it will help us to see two things, two things. First, it will give us eyes to see the beautiful fact that God calls people to himself from every people, tribe, and nation. This means that he calls people to himself from a variety of backgrounds, of cultures, of worldviews, and of previous orientations. With that diversity comes a diversity of convictions. And we can see beauty in that diversity even as we live out our convictions out of a single-minded devotion to God. And this ought to help us to be slow to critique and quick to forbear with one another. Second and finally, as God influences and grows in influence in the courtrooms of our minds, we will see that Romans 14 is not just about living and letting live. It is not commending to us letting everyone do what is right in their own eyes. It is about welcoming one another into the fellowship of God so that we might grow. So that we might grow into greater maturity, into the image of Christ. And so while we will refrain from passing judgment and despising one another, we will continue to speak the truth in love to one another. We will continue to walk down the path of putting away our old ways of living and thinking and taking up the new ways of living and thinking in Christ. And as we do so, we will find that we are not only on the path to unity, but that we are growing more and more unified in Christ along the way. Let's pray. Lord, you have 
graciously given us this word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would be guiding us into the proper understanding and application of it. Lord, I pray that you would give us a bigger view of you and a smaller view of those who would judge us in their courtrooms. I pray, Lord, that you and who you are as a God of grace and love and mercy and kindness and patience would dictate who we are towards ourselves and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we want to be unified, but we are so different. And we come from such different backgrounds. Lord, help us to see the beauty in that, even as we press on towards greater unity in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.